several years ago, we realized that we had created an infrastructure that could, in fact, make it possible to get rid of phlebotomy or the big tubes of blood that are drawn from the arm in its entirety. And we began this work to establish what has the opportunity to be ultimately the largest lab in the country. And uh, most importantly, to change the reality in lab testing today, which is that it's very painful. It was a few days before Christmas in 2013. A group of investors was listening to Elizabeth Holmes speak on a hastily arranged conference call. The excitement was palpable. After operating under the radar for a decade, Theranos was having its coming out party. The company had recently unveiled its plans to roll out its innovative finger stick blood tests in Walgreens' vast network of drugstores. Sensing a big opportunity, the assembled listeners were wrapped with attention. Hosting the call was Chris Lucas, who headed a venture capital fund called Black Diamond Ventures. Lucas's fund had first invested in Theranos seven years earlier, in 2006. Since then, the startup's stock price had exploded, making Black Diamond and other early investors a lot of money. Something Elizabeth wasn't shy about pointing out. As you all know, we have recently issued shares at $75 a share. Um, For reference, the initial investment in Theranos uh, that you all made was at 82 cents. Um, So we are already creating significant value. In other words, their investments had been multiplied by 91. That was an eye-popping return and it whetted everyone's appetite for more. Over the years, Elizabeth had told Lucas very little about what was going on at Theranos, which had been the source of some frustration for him and for some of the people who'd invested in his fund. But he'd trusted her, mostly because his uncle, the legendary venture capitalist Don Lucas, had vouched for her. Don Lucas had championed Elizabeth and chaired Theranos' board before becoming incapacitated by Alzheimer's disease. Still, even with the inside access provided by his uncle, Theranos had remained a black box to Chris Lucas because Elizabeth was so secretive. She'd given everyone just two weeks to decide whether they wanted to participate in a new round of funding. So this call was a rare chance to find out more information. Lucas was comforted by what he heard. It sounded like big banks were clamoring to get in on the action which was the equivalent of a seal of approval from Wall Street. We do have offers on the table right now from uh, financial institutions that uh, are in the several hundred million dollar range in terms of the amount of capital, and we're considering that. Elizabeth also seemed to be saying that the Walgreens partnership would give Theranos a national presence in no time which meant a large increase in revenues. It's really now a question of how fast do we scale. The fact that we will scale is a given. Our our retail partners have invested hundreds of millions of dollars in building out this framework, and 
Uh, we too have been preparing for this for many years now. Uh, the goal is to be able to be national very, very quickly. Chris Lucas liked what he was hearing. It still didn't amount to a ton of information, but it added to the bits and pieces he'd gleaned from the Theranos website and from an interview Elizabeth had given to the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Theranos had provided links to both in an email it had sent to shareholders a few months earlier. Lucas had been impressed by the Wall Street Journal piece. It stated that Theranos' processes were more accurate than conventional methods and required, quote, only microscopic blood volumes, suggesting a significant technological advance. After the call, Lucas caucused with his fund investors and quickly decided this was an opportunity he couldn't pass up. Within days, Black Diamond Ventures wired Theranos $5.3 million, bringing its total investment in the company to more than $7 million. It was the first trickle in what would become a gusher of money flowing into Theranos over the following months. I'm John Carreyrou, and this is Bad Blood, the final chapter. On today's episode, we're going to take a closer look at the sequence of events that led a small circle of investors to plow hundreds of millions of dollars into an unproven blood testing startup. During her first 10 years at the helm of Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes raised $115 million, a respectable sum, but nothing exceptional by Silicon Valley standards. Then, in the space of just 15 months, between December 2013 and March 2015, she raised seven times that much. How she did it is both a study in how to take advantage of gullible investors and a window into the clubby world of the rich, where relationships and connections are leveraged to gain access to investment opportunities not available to most people. More on that after the break. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. One of the people who invested in Theranos early on through Chris Lucas's venture capital fund was a Dallas real estate entrepreneur by the name of Craig Hall. Hall first heard of Theranos from a friend in the fall of 2006 and dispatched one of his employees, Brian Tolbert, to California to find out more. Tolbert flew to Palo Alto in November 2006 and met Elizabeth Holmes, Don Lucas, and Chris Lucas for dinner. As Elizabeth laid out her vision of replacing painful needle draws with tests performed on tiny samples of blood pricked from fingertips, Don Lucas entertained everyone with colorful stories about his long career in venture capital. Tolbert returned to Texas with a favorable report 
and Hall decided to invest $2 million through Chris Lucas's Black Diamond Ventures. Tolbert's notes at the time show that Elizabeth told him that Theranos was in the process of negotiating pharmaceutical contracts worth up to $50 million, and that it would be cash flow positive by the fourth quarter of 2007. Tolbert's notes also show that Elizabeth claimed Theranos would go public in an IPO in 2008 at a valuation of around a billion dollars. The IPO never materialized. Years went by, and Tolbert heard very little from Theranos. He kept in regular contact with Chris Lucas, but Lucas too was starved of information. At trial, Tolbert testified that he and Lucas had numerous conversations during this period about wanting more information from the company and more visibility as to what was going on. But Elizabeth told shareholders that Theranos needed to remain in what she liked to call stealth mode, to protect its innovations and catch its competitors by surprise. Theranos finally broke its radio silence seven years after Hall's initial investment. In September 2013, it emailed its shareholders to announce the commercial launch of its blood testing services in Walgreens stores, providing links to its new website and to Elizabeth's Wall Street Journal interview. Two months later, Black Diamond Ventures forwarded a Theranos slide deck to the Hall Group and its other limited partners titled Overview and Update. The slides highlighted high-profile appointments Theranos had made to its board, including former Secretaries of State George Shultz and Henry Kissinger, former Secretary of Defense William Perry, and former Wells Fargo CEO Richard Kovacevic. One slide showed a picture of Theranos' tiny blood tube, the nanotainer. At Theranos, we can perform our lab tests on samples as small as one one-thousandth the size of a typical blood draw, the slide read. It looked to Tolbert like Elizabeth had brought the vision she'd outlined to him over dinner seven years earlier to fruition. The last slide was titled Theranos Articles and included a link to the Wall Street Journal editorial, which stated that Theranos' devices successfully automated and miniaturized more than 1,000 laboratory tests. Tolbert testified that he took the claims made in the linked articles at face value. A couple weeks later, another email from Black Diamond arrived, alerting him to a conference call Elizabeth was going to hold with investors. Theranos was conducting a new fundraising round to, quote, accelerate their growth, the email said. On the day of the call, December 20th, 2013, Craig Hall was traveling. Tolbert knew his boss was frustrated with the little information they'd gotten from Theranos over the years, so he wanted to capture everything Elizabeth would say as best he could. Since he wasn't a fast typist, he decided to record the call from his office in Frisco, Texas. This would prove to be an incredibly lucky break for the prosecution. In a case where they needed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Elizabeth had lied to investors, here she was, speaking unguardedly on tape, unaware that she was being recorded. Chris Lucas opened the call with a few introductory remarks. Then, Elizabeth came on the line. Well, it's wonderful to 
with you all, and it's wonderful to, to be in a place in which we can uh, begin to talk about this. As, as you all know, we have been working very hard for a long time to build out this infrastructure, and we thus built the business around our partnerships with pharmaceutical companies and our contracts with the military, uh, wherein we could deploy our framework uh, in the one case for helping to accelerate clinical trials and in the other for uh, extreme uh, use case situations in trauma and other areas where there was a very compelling value proposition. Pharmaceutical companies and the military. Those were the two planks of Theranos' business up to this point, as Tolbert understood it. The two planks that had enabled Theranos to generate revenues while it was perfecting its technology. Elizabeth came back to them a little later in the call. The retail infrastructure is the foundation for being able to reactivate a lot of the pharmaceutical programs that we did that allowed us to built the business from cash from operations uh, since uh, we did our Series C round in 2006. Tolbert testified that this dovetailed with what he'd heard via Chris Lucas, that Theranos had generated significant cash from its contracts with pharmaceutical companies. We now know from the evidence presented at trial that this wasn't true. Theranos' contract with Pfizer, for instance, had earned it only $900,000. Its contract with Sharing Plow had generated just $279,000. Theranos had lost money every single year of its existence. By the end of 2013, when this call took place, the company had accumulated losses of $253 million. The focus on the pharmaceutical business is still a significant focus for us and will continue uh, effectively as a business unit as we now grow and will be very synergistic with what we've established in retail. This was another misleading statement. Theranos was no longer doing any business with pharmaceutical companies. The work had petered out years earlier. Dr. Shane Weber, a former Pfizer scientist, testified that Pfizer had discontinued its relationship with Theranos in 2009. Dr. Constance Cullen, a former Sharing Plow scientist, testified that Sharing Plow had stopped working with Theranos that same year. Then, one of the investors on the call asked about the military. Military is a big deal for us, and uh, I, I can tell you, Confidentially, a couple of the areas in which we've been focused there. Uh, one, in the context of uh, work in the Middle East and specifically in Afghanistan, the uh, survival rate of our men and women in field when they're hit uh, is 98% if they get through the doors of an emergency room within 60 minutes from the point of injury. And if we miss that window, uh, that's where bulk of our fatalities occur. And so the ability to take a technology like this and put it in flight 
specifically on a medevac, has the potential to change survival rates. And uh, what it does is it makes it possible to begin transfusion and stabilization uh, in flight. And so we've, we've been doing a lot of work there. We now know from trial testimony that Theranos' devices were never placed on medevac helicopters in the Middle East or Afghanistan, and that Theranos never did any work for the military beyond a small burn study years earlier. But Tolbert didn't know that at the time. He testified that he took Elizabeth's claims at face value, and that they really resonated with him because he had a brother in the Marines who did a tour of duty in Afghanistan. Theranos was helping save lives in the battlefield, he thought. command in the context of missions in remote areas where not only is there no capability to do testing for certain things that need to be measured, uh, but if situations arise in which those tests are warranted, the mission is aborted and uh, people are evacuated generally out of continent. And so um, we have created a distributed system that can be used in remote areas, and that is, that is another big area of focus for us, and it's also very symbolic because it's our way of being able to help uh, make a difference in whatever small way we can. When Tolbert was asked by prosecutors whether these statements influenced him, he said they definitely did. He testified that he saw Theranos as an opportunity to make money while doing good for, quote, lots and lots of people. Tolbert was also impressed with Elizabeth's claims of greater testing accuracy. Today, if you go to a lab in San Francisco and you go to a lab in L.A., on the same day, for the same value, one could report a result that is, for example, on a test like HDL, cholesterol plus or minus 30%, which means on the same day for a single test, based on the fact that each lab is centralized, has its own lab director, has its own reference range, uses its own equipment, which is different from what other labs use, you could see a 60% variance in data. Theranos, by contrast, had a less than 5% variance Elizabeth said the difference had to do with the fact that Theranos's quote, analytical infrastructure was standardized, which implied that the company was using one type of proprietary machine for all its testing. As we've seen in previous episodes, that wasn't true. Elizabeth also cited another factor for Theranos's superior accuracy. Because the sample is fresh and it's not you know, a big series of tubes of blood that are sitting on a counter uh, and exposed to temperature. Uh, We don't suffer the rates of decay of key analytes that happen uh, when you ship samples off to a central lab. Tolbert took that to mean that the Theranos devices would be in Walgreens stores and the testing would be done on site. That wasn't the case. Theranos was shipping the blood samples it collected in Walgreens stores back to its lab in Palo Alto, just like other lab companies did. The notion of a, quote, fresher blood sample was a fantasy Elizabeth had invented. 
Even though he was on the road, Craig Hall had managed to join the call. He too was impressed by what he heard. After they hung up, he and Tolbert regrouped and decided to join the offering. Eleven days later, on December 31, 2013, the Hall Group invested another $4.9 million in Theranos, this time directly. Tolbert testified that the investor call was, quote, central to their investment decision. Other investors who'd listened to the call also invested, including two venture funds managed by Don Lucas's son. They wired a total of $41.8 million to Theranos' account at Comerica Bank. It was a decent haul, but it would prove to be small change compared with the giant wave of money that was coming. Because soon, Elizabeth would give an interview that would help open the floodgates. More after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. A few months later, in March of 2014, Roger Parloff, Fortune Magazine's legal correspondent, was sitting in his office in the Time and Life building in Midtown Manhattan when an article in the online newsletter Litigation Daily caught his attention. The article was about a patent case involving the famous lawyer David Boys. Parloff had never heard of the company Boys was representing in the case, Theranos, but he knew Boys well. He'd covered some of his courtroom exploits in the past, like his victory on behalf of the Justice Department in the late 1990s antitrust case against Microsoft. Parloff was intrigued and called Boyes' public relations representative, Don Schneider, to see if Boyes would talk to him about the case. Schneider told him the real story wasn't so much the patent case, it was Theranos' extraordinary founder, Elizabeth Holmes. When Parloff met with Boyes, Boyce conveyed the same message. Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos were what he should focus on. So Parloff followed their advice, and on April 7, 2014, he flew out to San Francisco to meet with Elizabeth. When he landed, he took a cab straight to Theranos' headquarters on California Avenue in Palo Alto. That evening... Parloff conducted the first of several taped interviews with Elizabeth over dinner at a local restaurant. These tapes would become another boon for prosecutors. So much so, in fact, that they would make them the finale of their case in chief. Parloff had noticed that former Defense Secretary Bill Perry, retired General Jim Mattis, and retired Admiral Gary Roughhead were on Theranos' board, so he broached the topic of the military. Elizabeth told him that Theranos technology had military-specific applications that are quite promising when you think about what it means to be on a mission or in the middle of nowhere and need 
know, access to technology. Mm. That, that's something that you know, I'm personally very passionate about because I see it as our way to serve the family in whatever small way we can. Is that something that you can put out in the field, you know, when we're fighting in Iraq, or, or is that uh, too, too large? No, we can't. So that's the sort of yep. thing we're talking about. Yep. Exactly. Karloff testified at trial that Elizabeth later implied to him that the Theranos devices were used in the battlefield in Afghanistan, but that it was very sensitive information he couldn't use in his article. As their dinner conversation continued, Parloff changed topics. Earlier, Elizabeth had told him that she slept four hours a night, worked seven days a week, and never took a vacation. That made Parloff wonder what kind of a personal life someone with that schedule could have. He asked her if she had a significant other. Elizabeth replied that no, Theranos took up all of her time. And that was, quote, a good thing. This should have been a red flag. Parloff knew that Elizabeth was living with Sonny. The researchers at Fortune had found that they were using the same address. But he decided not to confront her because he didn't want to jeopardize the good access he was getting. The next day, he and Elizabeth met again at Theranos' offices. Elizabeth gave him a little tour. One of the areas she showed him was the company's research lab. Stacked on shelves were a dozen black and white boxes that looked like computer towers topped by digital touchscreens. These were Theranos' proprietary Edison analyzers. Parloff's visit lasted four days. On one of those days, he visited Theranos' blood draw site at the Walgreens in downtown Palo Alto and got his blood tested by finger stick. He also went to see the company's big manufacturing facility across San Francisco Bay. On the last day of his visit, Parloff and Elizabeth sat down for another taped interview. Elizabeth was very controlling with information, and she didn't want Parloff to give too many details in his article about what he'd seen. I think we don't want to get into how many devices we have or, you know, any of that okay. kind of stuff, but meaning, you know, types of devices or any of those types of things. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's, it's probably, we, we call it an analytical system, which, mm-hmm. um, analytical system, which is, which is basically, you know, uh, a piece of hardware that's okay. used for, um, for processing the samples. And, uh, I take it though that it takes a lot up a lot less space than what an ordinary lab test would entail. It's a small, much smaller footprint. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That might have been an accurate description of the Edisons Parloff had seen in Theranos' research lab, but the company was only using them for a handful of tests. As we've covered in previous episodes, Theranos was using the same big third-party machines as other labs for most of its testing. Do you know currently, do most labs have some sort of large machine, or is it more a matter of, um, yes. you know, squirting it into the various... There, there's many machines, and they're mm. very big, um, and they take up a huge footprint. So there's a very significant amount of overhead that's associated with that. 
Left unsaid was the fact that Theranos had to shoulder the same overhead costs because it was using those very same machines. After Parloff returned to New York, he had several more phone interviews with Elizabeth in which he asked follow-up questions. During one of these calls on May 12, 2014, Parloff asked if he could see Theranos' clinical laboratory where it tested patient samples. Uh, interested in if, if it would be possible, the, a Phoenix lab visit. Um, yes. So Phoenix's lab is not yet operational. Oh. Uh, all those samples are still being processed here in Palo Alto. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, what the lab looks like, remember you saw that bank of devices that we sort of went up to in the lab upstairs? Yeah. Black and white. It's literally, in, they were on sort of a, a stack of um, shelves. Mm-hmm. Um, so the lab is basically um, probably four of those stacks with devices on both sides. So you're, if you'd like to see it, and I was trying to remember whether I walked you through it or not, it was downstairs. Um, you're welcome to come back out here and see it. I see, uh, but I've basically seen it. You've seen it. <laughs> and it's basically just a bank of those devices. This was a lie. Theranos's clinical lab in Palo Alto contained some Edisons, but it also contained numerous third-party machines. Okay, so it would be about um, how many of those devices in all? Um, there's probably, I mean, our, so we have actually several left here. Our biggest one probably has um, like 50 of them. And I, I would put that off the record because yeah. we, don't, we don't want to publish that. And then we have another bank of about 200 of them, but that is sort of split up across multiple facilities that we're starting. We're going to be moving the lab here to Newark, so some of them are going to go to 200. I'm sorry, some, the, the 200 are going to go to Newark, and then uh, some of the ones here are going to go to Phoenix. I see. This was another lie. No Edisons were being sent to Phoenix. That lab only ever contained third-party machines. During another call two days later, Parloff asked if Theranos ever used third-party analyzers to do tests it couldn't do on its proprietary platform. At trial, he testified that Elizabeth replied, quote, uh-uh, which he took to mean, no, we don't do that. A week later, during another call, Parloff homed in on the number of tests Theranos could do with its technology. Elizabeth had told him Theranos could perform tests that corresponded to more than a thousand diagnostic billing codes. But Parloff had counted only about 200 tests on the menu the company had posted on its website. What is the difference then between the the 200 that are listed and the a thousand you feel comfortable you can do? Those ones on the website are the ones that are most commonly done. I see. Okay. And so those are the ones that, that we've brought up first. But we are adding to it. And, in fact, if someone sends a test to the lab, we can run it, even if the um, test is not on the website. Mm-hmm. 
However, we're not actively um, um, publishing that we have that test um, because we have focused on the core set that are on the uh, website for how we've operationalized the laboratory today. But we do have the ability to, to do tests that are not on the website, and we do do that. I mean, there's patients who come into our collection centers, and they have orders for tests that are not on the website, and we do handle it. This, again, was misleading. Theranos outsourced many of the tests that weren't on its menu to outside labs, like the lab at the University of California, San Francisco, or a big reference lab in Utah called ARUP. And of the 200 or so tests that were on its menu, only 12 or fewer were run on its Edison devices. As part of his research for his article, Parloff had gone to visit a Quest lab in New Jersey. He wanted to know if Theranos could match Quest's vast testing capabilities. As I walked around the Quest diagnostics lab, you know, there were these, there was automated chemistry, there was hematology, there was microbiology, that was like petri dishes. Yep. TB, parasites, mycology, bacteriology. Then there was vitamin D. Then there was anatomic pathology, which I think was tissues. They had slides. There were precancerous lesions uh, from, uh, you know, uh, I guess pap smears, Mm -hmm. uh, testing for STD, HPV. Then there was a histology lab. All of this is stuff you can do? Yes. Okay. Yeah. It's uh it's so incredible. <laughs> it's, yeah. um, okay. I mean it's it's one of those those special things when you apply technology and software towards solving problems that you This was simply untrue. The Edison could only do one class of blood tests known as immunoassays. Theranos' next generation device, the Minilab, was designed to do more. But as we've covered in previous episodes, it was still a malfunctioning prototype and was never used to test patient samples. Parloff's story came out in the June 2014 issue of Fortune magazine. And sure enough, it contains several inaccuracies. Like this sentence. Theranos, quote, currently offers more than 200 and is ramping up to offer more than 1,000 of the most commonly ordered blood diagnostic tests, all without the need for a syringe, end quote. And this passage, quote, Importantly, it's not just the blood draws that are tiny. It's also the analytical systems Theranos uses to perform the tests. They take up a small fraction of the footprint required by a conventional lab today. That makes it possible to imagine one day placing Holmes' labs right by the operating rooms in hospitals, or in military evacuation helicopters, or on ships and submarines, or in refugee camps, or in tents in the African bush, end quote. And then there was this whopper, quote, Theranos, which does not buy any analyzers from third parties, is therefore in a unique position. End quote. Elizabeth never sought to correct these falsehoods. In fact, she loved the story. Parloff testified that she praised it effusively to him after it was published and featured a link to it on Theranos' website. 
Soon, she would be using it to woo more investors. That's after the break. A month after Roger Parloff's cover story was published in Fortune magazine, Theranos board member Henry Kissinger asked his longtime estate attorney Dan Mosley to take a look at the company. Theranos was raising money again, and Kissinger was thinking about investing. He wanted Mosley to give him a second opinion. As Kissinger later told the writer Ken Oletta, he'd gain a lot of admiration for Elizabeth from his seat on the board. In my observation, she is like a member of a monastic order. She's dedicated to this enterprise. And so she works on it 18 hours a day. I've never seen her do anything else. I've never seen a situation where somebody asks a question and she has to say, well, I have to check this out. Uh, she's always amazingly prepared. Mosley, who worked at the white shoe law firm Cravath, Swain and & Moore and had looked after Kissinger's estate for more than 15 years, called Elizabeth and asked if she could send him the investment materials. During the call, Elizabeth mentioned to Mosley that she was looking for, quote, high-quality families to invest in Theranos, families that owned businesses in the U.S. and were willing to be patient and make a long-term investment. Mosley, it turned out, was just the right person to make such introductions. In addition to Kissinger, he advised wealthy families like the Waltons of Walmart fame and Atlanta's Cox family, owners of the conglomerate Cox Enterprises. After he hung up with Elizabeth, he reached out to Greg Penner, Walmart's vice chairman, who was Rob Walton's son-in-law, to relay Elizabeth's message. Penner immediately expressed interest. A few weeks later, Elizabeth sent Mosley a thick investment packet. It included the fortune story, which Mosley read with interest, It also included financial projections. One of them was that Theranos would earn revenues of $140 million in 2014. Since it was August and eight months of the year had already elapsed, Mosley testified that he gave that number credence. Little did he know Theranos was actually on track to earn little more than $100,000 in revenues for the year. Besides the fortune story and the revenue projections, there was something else in the packet that caught Mosley's attention. A report with the logo of the pharmaceutical giant Pfizer that appeared to endorse Theranos' technology. In a memo he drew up for Kissinger, Mosley wrote that, quote, the most extensive evidence supplied regarding the reliability of the Theranos technology is a study report prepared by Pfizer, end quote. The Pfizer report's conclusions, Mosley added, were extraordinarily complimentary. This made an impression on Kissinger, as he later told Aletta. It has undergone tests by, I think, a major drug company, Pfizer, I believe, that have confirmed its uh, scientific validity. 
So it's becoming one of these silicon ideas where some unlikely person by the power of her imagination and her dedication is creating uh, enormous benefits in a way that could happen only in America. What neither Mosley nor Kissinger realized was that the so-called Pfizer report hadn't been written by Pfizer. It had been written by Theranos. The Pfizer logo printed on the top left side of each of its 26 pages had been added by Elizabeth without Pfizer's knowledge. As Dr. Weber, the former Pfizer scientist, testified, Pfizer had never endorsed or validated Theranos' technology. Quite the contrary. When she took the stand, Elizabeth said she hadn't intended to mislead anyone by adding the logo, but that she now wished she had, quote, done it differently. Not knowing that Mosley's memo was based on a forged pharmaceutical report, a misleading magazine cover story, and fictional revenue projections, Kissinger decided to invest $3 million in Theranos. And Mosley himself was now thinking about investing. In September, Mosley went to a conference for family-owned companies organized by BDT Capital in Chicago. He knew Elizabeth would be there to speak on a panel, so he arranged for her to meet several of his clients in attendance, including Walmart's Greg Penner and Sam Walton and Cox Enterprises' Alex Taylor. He also introduced her to Jerry Tubergen, the CEO of RDV Corporation. RDV managed the money of the DeVos family, which derived most of its fortune from the multi-level marketing company Amway. Tubergen came out of his meeting with Elizabeth deeply impressed. He dashed off an email to four DeVos family members attaching the Fortune magazine story, which Mosley had sent him the night before. He encouraged them to read it and asked them to carve out 15 minutes to discuss what he termed, quote, a very unique investment opportunity at a meeting the next day. On the plane ride back to RDV's headquarters in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Tubergen talked excitedly about Theranos to his colleague Lisa Peterson, an RDV investment manager. Peterson was intrigued. Her husband had type 1 diabetes, a disease that has to be monitored with frequent blood draws. She volunteered to work on the investment and later put together a memo for the family. One passage of her memo read, quote, Theranos uses their own analyzer equipment. Unlike most labs, Theranos does not buy analyzer equipment from a third party, end quote. Another passage read, quote, a Theranos analyzer station is a small fraction of the size of a current lab, making it possible to place a Theranos lab in the operating room or in a military evacuation helicopter, on ships, in refugee camps, virtually anywhere, end quote. When Peterson was asked on the stand where she got this information, she said it came from Elizabeth, which Elizabeth didn't exactly deny when she was questioned by the SEC. Did you tell RDV Corporation in late 2014 that Theranos uses its own analyzer equipment? I, I don't know if I did. I'm, I'm not sure. Did you ever hear Mr. Balwani make that statement? Uh, again, I can't remember the specifics of these conversations. I don't, I don't know. 
Did you ever tell RDV Corporation in late 2014 that the Theranos analyzer is a small fraction of the size of the current lab? I can't remember the specifics of the conversation, but that's reflective of Minilab. But as we've already discussed at length in this podcast, the Minilab was a malfunctioning prototype, and Theranos never used it to test patient samples. As it had with Mosley, Theranos had sent RDV a binder, which informed other parts of Peterson's memo. Under the heading, Exemplary Reports from Pharmaceutical Partners, it included the report with a doctored Pfizer logo. Peterson testified that, like Mosley, she thought Pfizer had written it. It seemed to validate everything Elizabeth had told her about the accuracy of Theranos' technology, she said. In October 2014, Peterson and Tubergen flew out to Palo Alto with three members of the DeVos family. In what was now well-rehearsed theater, Elizabeth and Sonny demoed one of the Theranos devices for them. Peterson and Tubergen later asked to see the clinical lab, which had just moved to Newark, across San Francisco Bay from Palo Alto. But they were told they couldn't, because it was, quote, top secret. After a long meeting with Elizabeth, the RDV contingent caucused in the parking lot. The DeVosses had originally been thinking of investing $50 million. But Elizabeth said other families were coming in at $100 million. So they decided to invest $100 million too. Elizabeth wasn't lying about that. The Coxes were about to invest $100 million, and the Waltons $150 million. That wasn't all. There was another wealthy client Mosley had introduced Theranos to, Andreas Drakopoulos, the nephew of Greek shipping tycoon Stavros Nyarkos. Drakopoulos presided over his late uncle's foundation. A few days after the DeVos's visit, Mosley accompanied three Nyarkos Foundation staffers to Theranos headquarters in Palo Alto. But the visit didn't go as smoothly as Mosley had hoped. The foundation staffers asked a lot of questions. In an email he sent Elizabeth when he got back to New York, Mosley wrote that Drakopoulos had asked him to, quote, apologize for not being there to cut through the nonsense. Instead of the foundation investing, Drakopoulos wanted to know if he could make a personal investment of $25 million, Mosley wrote. The lawyer added another request at the end of his email. Personally, I would be delighted and honored to be part of your first closing. My hope would be to invest $6 million. In the ensuing weeks, Mosley, Drakopoulos, the DeVosses, the Coxes, and the Waltons all invested in Theranos. What had begun as a simple request for advice from Henry Kissinger to his estate lawyer had snowballed into a combined $375 million in investments from four wealthy families. Adding Kissinger and Mosley's own smaller investments, the total came to $384 million. The great irony is that the man who'd put in motion the whole sequence of events, Kissinger, had by his own account initially been dubious of Elizabeth. I started because George Schultz uh, was so enthusiastic and then they were Sam Nunn and Bill Perry and we were at one time called the Gang of Four so we exchanged ideas a lot. They were all very 
But eventually, Kissinger did become a groupie. And thanks in part to Roger Parloff's fortune cover story and that doctored Pfizer report, so did his estate lawyer, Dan Mosley. And once Mosley became ensnared in Elizabeth's web, his gullible billionaire clients were ripe for the picking. Bad Blood, the final chapter, is a Three Uncanny Four production. If you've been following Elizabeth Holmes' trial in the news or on our bonus episodes, you know it's expected to end soon. But we don't know when exactly. For the last full episode of this show, we're planning to cover the verdict. So our last episode might not come out at the exact same time as previous episodes. But we'll be working hard to get it to you as soon as we can. And remember, if you don't want to wait for new full episodes, we put out a shorter bonus episode each week where we talk about what's happening in the trial day to day. If you want to hear those, subscribe to the show in Apple Podcasts. The show is hosted by me, John Carreyrou. Our show is produced by Lena Richards, Rahima Nasa, and Jennifer Siegel. Emily Saul is our reporter. Jenny Kim is our production manager. Laura Mayer is our executive producer. Our engineer is Kevin Seaman. Casey Holford composed the theme music. If you like the show, head over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit subscribe. Leave a rating and a comment while you're there. It really helps new listeners find the show. For Three Uncanny Four, I'm John Carreyrou.